Hey guys, welcome to All the Crime Things podcast. I'm Drianna. And I'm Courtney. Our goal is to bring light to stories that need it, discuss the psychology of different events, and learn about the laws and how our justice system works or doesn't. For this episode, we'll be highlighting a true crime case that really made an impact on our world today. We also have one additional unrelated news article to discuss. Um, But before that, we're going to go over some quick information updates um, from our previous articles. At this time, there are no updates to any of my previous articles. So from our first episode, we went over a case involving um, Elliot Blair, which if you haven't heard the full story on that, do listen to that episode. Um, As of January 31st, Blair's family has ordered an autopsy to be conducted in Los Angeles for Wednesday, February 1st. Um, There's no details online as of yet about that. Uh, even though today is the 7th as we record this. It's interesting, though, because when we looked at this last, they were um, trying to get his body back over to the U.S. Right. And going through all that. So that's great. They got him back. Um, so this current article that I was reading is stating that the there's a lot of conflicting information, a lot of back and forth um, between, like, the U.S. and the Mexican authorities still. Um, so the current article is stating that the Baja California Attorney General stated that Elliot's cause of death was a traumatic brain injury, but through the family's lawyer, allegedly a detective told uh, Kim Williams, his wife, that Blair had suffered a gunshot wound to the head, but a contact from the coroner's office said that the paperwork actually indicated that Blair sustained a blow to the head and that his death was being investigated as a homicide. So it's still weird conflicting information back and forth. Do you think it's because of a language barrier? I was just thinking that because think of the words blow to the head and gunshot wound to the head. Like bullet. I don't know the Spanish words for any of these words, but that was my first thought was maybe there's miscommunication because of the language barrier of the people who were at the hotel. Right. That's what it is kind of sounding like because everybody's so confused on like what's going on in a way like they're not understanding what is being told from one side to another side but authorities at the scene um, on the night that Blair died suggested that he was drunk however and I don't think this was mentioned previously but his wife Kim is denying that he was like that drunk to fall okay allegedly so just had a couple of drinks not intoxicated right we know that as at least it was stated Um, that they were drinking at the hotel bar, but again, we don't know how much that really was. Was it enough to make him fall or? Well, and I'm not sure how big Elliot is, but you know, you get different tolerance based on your body size and how often you drink. So, I mean, it could be that he wasn't drunk. (laughs) It wouldn't have taken a lot to get drunk and fall out. (laughs) But I digress. That's scary. But yeah, so the Attorney General in Baja, California, um, also denied that the body was ordered for embalming without permission. That was a big thing that the family was arguing, saying that that there was conflicting information of, oh, you have to embalm him now, even though they wanted to hold off on that to do their own reports. But the family's lawyer, Case Barnett, um, has advised that it was unclear if this case is still considered open or not, considering that uh, the family hired their own people for this too they have their own investigator private investigator they have right, their own doesn't always work out when it's like united states case with united states working solely on that and the family hires somebody so it's really interesting mm-hmm. to see a, another country come into it and i think we can learn a lot from watching this yeah. unfold right and um hopefully and things are moving along it seems 
hopefully the family can find some peace and get a lot of answers because there's too many questions right now. I know there's so many like it's reading the whole article you're just kind of back and forth like okay who what what yeah. is going on and who's responsible that's a big question too who's right. responsible for which part yeah I think that's the biggest question right now is the why behind what essentially but we'll yeah. have to keep an eye on this one and last time you were talking about how they had to raise like over a hundred thousand dollars to transport his they body did. yeah why I've been thinking about that like why does she have to pay for that She's not That's at a good fault. Question. You know, it's an American that died on in another country's territory or soil. You know, like, why wouldn't America pay for that? I don't even think that where they were in Mexico, I don't think it's that far from the States. Honestly. Right, yeah, Baja California, if I remember correctly, is just south of California. It kind of, like, juts out from the Mexican mainland. Right. Okay, so this article focuses on Ellen Greenberg. She was um, 27 when she was found stabbed to death in her Philadelphia kitchen during a 2011 blizzard. She was found with gruesome injuries that suggested homicide, but according to her family, the police reversed the course and labeled her death a suicide instead. So 12 years later, her family is still questioning the circumstances and the conflicting evidence. She was stabbed 20 times. And 10 of the wounds were to the back of her head and neck, as well as she was covered in bruises, which were both old and new, according to her family. Uh, Greenberg's fiancé, Samuel Goldberg, similar name, sorry if that gets confusing at all, stated to police he came home, kicked in the locked door to their apartment, and found her dead with a knife stuck in her chest, leaning against a kitchen cabinet, as relayed in court documents. I feel like I've heard this story. Maybe, like... Maybe when it first came out, like this 12 years ago. This must have been a big thing, yeah. I know, I'm thinking about it now, it kind of sounds familiar to me. Maybe I did hear it before, but yeah, 2011. When her fiancé comes home, why did he kick in the door to their apartment? Yeah, why didn't he just use a key? There's really no information in the article regarding, like, why would you just be like, hey, honey, I'm home, kick the door in. I don't know, and I'm, I'm not going to say that it's true for this case, but, you know somebody is murdered usually the spouse is the number one suspect so i find it really strange that he kicked the door in yeah that didn't quite make sense to sense to me um so her family is still fighting for justice for her to figure out what happened because essentially no one has any idea what happened so her family's mo moving forward with two lawsuits against philadelphia officials the first lawsuit is seeking to have her cause of death revised from suicide to homicide or undecided and a separate more recent civil suit also accuses several officials close to the case of a conspiracy to cover up greenberg's homicide according to the family's attorney uh, joseph padraza who anticipates the first case will go to trial within the next three months Regarding the civil suit allegations, Pedraza stated, um, quote, They're saying the actions discussed in the complaint are protected by high official immunity. That type of immunity protects public authorities from lawsuits stemming from discretional decision-making in their official capacity. Our position is pretty straightforward. None of these public officials are authorized to commit crimes, end quote. So he's saying basically that for some reason, these officers are like, nope, mm, we're protected. What we said is right. That's just the way it is. Even though there's a big hole in this case, because obviously, if you saw the 
not video, excuse me, the picture that shows where the stab wounds are on her, most of them are in her, like, in her back and, like, back right, of her yeah. head. I remember, I swear I remember hearing this one. Yeah. Like, that would be so difficult to do, like, in a How suicide. How could you do that as, yeah, And as then you said stabbed over 20 times. That's not yeah. something that I feel like most people would do for a suicide. You know, like, if you have a knife, you're going to go for the wrists or your throat you know like like you make it quick and you want to die you don't want to torture yourself there's a difference horrible and there was nothing i don't think indicating that she would truly feel this way either Hmm. it's pretty interesting um and so a former homicide prosecutor guy um i'm gonna mispronounce his last name deandrea with the philadelphia district attorney's office um spoke to Fox News and in September and said that these four key pieces of evidence prompted him to doubt that it was a suicide. There was a large wound to the top of the victim's head. She was found seated upright, but the blood was dripped sideways across her face. So she had been laying down and it had dripped and then somebody picked somebody her up. Somebody moved her post-mortem, yeah. Um, the victim appeared to have several bruises at different stages of healing. The fiancé's statement was he broke down the locked door when the crime scene photos show that the latch was actually still attached to both the door and the frame. Well, I want to go back. So the door wasn't kicked in now. The different stages of healing, that, to me, screams domestic abuse. Right. Unless, I don't know, chalk it up to clumsiness. But that's something that domestic abuse victims usually claim. Right. There was evidence the scene had been staged and her body had been moved. The family's private investigator said dried blood would not have dripped sideways across her face if she had died in the position that she was found. Well, and also, you know, you said she was leaned up against, like, the kitchen cabinets. I would assume, like, sitting up against them. I mean, it would be hard to, like, sit this way without slumping over. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you were, let's just say, committing suicide in front of the kitchen cabinets with a knife it would be so hard that the cabinets would be behind you you wouldn't be able to get that knife back there and then like and inflict those back. wounds because yeah I mean, you'd slump forward yeah it wouldn't make sense there's no way that you'd be able to sit like that i mean you'd either fall to the side mm-hmm. i don't mean to bonk sorry you'd, you'd either fall to the side or you would you would go forward right and i don't need mean to move so much but you know i i think by moving so excuse my moving but yeah i just that doesn't make any sense to me at all that she would be sitting no. in that way even if she hadn't been moved like if there was any way to explain that there, there's no way it just doesn't make sense no, it absolutely doesn't. And despite the blood-soaked crime scene and stab wounds to the back of her skull, investigators found no evidence of a struggle in the kitchen area or anywhere else in the apartment, apparently. Um, did they use luminol? <laughs> Have they ever heard of Clorox? I mean, kitchens are... I would like to say easier to clean than other rooms just because they don't right. have carpet. Right. You don't have to worry about that. It's a hard surfaces. And without using, you know, extra investigative efforts, you might mm-hmm. not be able to see that. So did they search or did they just say, oh, we didn't see anything? Because that's what I would like to know. I would assume that based on how everybody's feeling with this is that they just went, we didn't see it. And I think that's why the family's so pissed because clearly this is not a suicide. Now, I'm not a 
police officer, investigator, detective or anything, but the facts are there. Right. You know, obviously we weren't there either, but from what it sounds like, it does not sound like a, a standard suicide. Um, so Dr. Marlon Osborne, a former pathologist at the medical examiner's office in Philadelphia, initially ruled her death as a homicide based on her injuries. But then he backtracked and revised the manner of death to suicide after he talked with the city police, which is according to a lawsuit filed by uh, Greenberg's family against Osborne and two other pathologists involved. So why is there all this backtracking? Why were they like, oh, yeah, definitely a homicide. I mean, a uh, suicide. Who's Goldberg? Her, her fiancé, is he on the police force? I don't think so. I did not see anything about that. They didn't mention much about him in this article. Because I know that, you know, it's not all the time, but it happens where police cover up cases because one of their own committed a crime like this. And mm. um, I just I can't fathom why they would cover up for somebody who's not on the force. Yeah. Just I some did random not. fiance. You know, you'd think they'd want to put him behind bars. We if... will have to check into that and see if there's like an update because this is... Um, I think going to trial soon or already is at least in like the court's hands okay or something so i think we'll have more on this soon um, hopefully and especially again for the family um a couple more quick points here on this one um tom brennan a former state police trooper for 25 years and the private investigator the family has hired almost a decade ago um, through depositions in the first lawsuit apparently the family discovered in 2021 so just two years ago now, that Greenberg suffered a 6.5 centimeter wound to the back of her head after her heart had already stopped beating. Wow, that's after really, really difficult to do in a suicide. She was dead. Right. You don't get more wounds post-mortem. That makes no sense. You can't do that. And several forensic pathologists um, and one of the country's leading experts in the field reviewed Dr. Osborne's findings over the years and found the circumstances strongly suspicious of homicide, but there's currently no timeline for the investigation's possible conclusion. So this case is still technically open and even more so considering that her family is filing lawsuits that I hope will bring them some kind of justice. Yeah, I hope or information. they can get some answers that satisfy them because mm -hmm. that is a very unsatisfying. That would drive me nuts. I don't even know how you could sleep at night no. being the police officer that was like, oh, yeah, she clearly committed suicide. Like, I just can't imagine. No, that makes no sense. I mean, it is true from the photographs. There are some, like, frontal stab wounds, but a majority of them are in her back and her head, like, back of her head. So it's, I don't know. My well, opinion even to the obvious. chest. Like, how many suicide attempts are even made where somebody stabs themselves in the chest? I wouldn't think many. I'd feel like there's just so many other Easier. ways. Easier. Yeah. Yeah, I hate to say that word, terms, but right. I mean, there's there's definitely more popular ways that people would attempt it. And I, I just don't think that a stabbing in the chest is even on the list of like the top 20, you know, like No. I don't think I don't think so. I'm not going to sit here and list all the ways that you can kill yourself. No. Because that's inappropriate in any conversation, but I just don't think that this is one of the ways that people would do it. No, but this circles back to like what we're talking about like, you know, in our introduction of our episodes is that we want to see how either the justice system works or doesn't. 
Right. And here we are with a big one that, in my opinion, doesn't work because why are they changing their narrative? And this happens a lot with lots of different kinds of cases, not just, you know, a murder or something like that, but even like missing persons cases and stuff like that. There's weird times where the police just end up like backtracking or they don't do enough or they just go, hmm, well, we've done all we can do. Well, and it's and a really interesting way to put it, too, that they're they're backtracking. They're not saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry we got this wrong the first time. No. Let us correct ourselves. We screwed mm. up. We want to do what's best for your family. Like, no, they're not saying that. They're like, no, no we never said that. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, right. <laughs> that's that's not okay. That's not no. that's not acceptable. No, our I'd justice be system so should be better than that. It should. It's disappointing. Absolutely. It is. I would be so pissed and especially as the family of someone that happens to like I can't imagine that pain me neither mm-hmm. absolutely not like until you till you die that's the only thing that you're gonna think about you're gonna that's like your life mission I would think obviously yeah. I'm not in that position I've never lost somebody in this manner however with my personality and the way that I know myself I know I wouldn't be able to move on ever no, I'd need to know what happened and I need it to be resolved I agree it's horrifying that is. So we'll keep an eye on this one for any upcoming updates, and hopefully there's more information um, soon. So we're going to get started with our big case for tonight, and it involves a young girl named Amber Hagerman and how her abduction inspired the widely known missing persons alert we all know as the Amber Alert. I don't feel like that many people know this story. Like, to be quite honest, uh, I did not know much about it until recently, and I think that it's really great that it's becoming more talked about again. Is there a documentary that just came out? There could be. I think there's a documentary that aired recently or previously. I can't remember. Well, and it's not a new case either. No, it's not. But it's interesting how cases circulate and how things come back up, and especially a big one like this because, you know, like you said, this is what prompted Amber Alerts, and we all know what those are. We all experienced those at some point in time. Um, So it's really interesting that it's becoming more talked about and, Um, I'm excited to hear about it in its actual entirety. Um, So we just want to give a quick, also, content advisory warning here. Uh, This case involves a little bit graphic details regarding the murder of a child. Um, We're going to timestamp that area if you want to skip through it. But um, I think we can just head on into the case now. I'm really excited. So we'll roll into Amber's story and her kidnapping. Amber Renee Hagerman was born on November 25th, 1986. She loved to play outside and ride her bike with her five-year-old little brother, Ricky. He looked up to her, and she was absolutely devoted to being an amazing big sister. Amber also loved going to school and visiting her grandparents, Glenda and Jimmy Whitson. In December 1995, Amber got a brand new pink bike for Christmas, and she couldn't wait to ride it. Her mother, Donna Norris, took Amber and Ricky to their grandparents' house for a visit on Friday, January 12, 1996. The kids were so excited to spend the weekend with their grandma and grandpa. The next day, on Saturday, January 13, 1996, Amber and Ricky asked if they could go for a bike ride. Donna told the kids to stay close and only go around the block of their grandparents' house. She believed they'd be safe if they kept to their neighborhood in Arlington, Texas. This was where she grew up riding her own bike as a child. You know, it's really interesting, that fact, just right there, because that's how I feel today. Um, And as a parent in today's world, like, that's something that I fear, too. Like, my kids want to ride their bikes around the block all the time and I worry the entire time I'll be like okay you can go but don't talk to anybody don't look at anybody nothing you just go in circles and you come right back because seriously 
That is my biggest fear. Completely. And this story also hits home in a way because there's a similar case of a young girl who was abducted uh, where we live. And to this day, she still hasn't been found. That's been 20 years. That was 20 years ago. That's crazy. I know. Really sad. So Amber wanted to check out a nearby parking lot instead. She rode to the lot of an abandoned Winn-Dixie grocery store with Ricky. However, he got nervous about breaking the rules and decided to head back to their grandparents' house. Amber told him she'd follow in a minute, but when he looked back, he didn't see her. Ricky made it back to his grandparents' house, and they asked him where his sister was. He told them she was riding in the parking lot, so they told him, well, go back and get her. Unfortunately, when Ricky pedaled back, she was nowhere to be seen. He raced back home and told them that she was gone. Their grandpa, Jimmy Whitson, rushed to the scene in his car. Police were already, or shortly after, um, arriving at the scene because they had already been called about a kidnapping. 78-year-old Jimmy Kevill had been in his yard when he saw Amber riding around the lot. He also witnessed a black truck pull up. Jimmy watched in horror when a man hopped out and grabbed Amber. And I just want to cut in here, too, and say that, like, a parking lot just doesn't seem threatening to a kid. No, I remember I loved riding around in parking lots. It was a big open space. There's nothing around. Like, it was just fun. And my kids like that, too. Especially with rollerblades. Like, any any kind of smaller wheels, scooters, Mm -hmm. and we're... When I attempted skateboarding once. (laughs) And where we grew up, um, our trees were old in our neighborhood, so all of our sidewalks Mm -hmm. were like this... And yeah, it was it was horrible to ride Especially, there. Especially, yeah, rollerblading, skateboarding, non-existent. Yeah, if I saw a new paved um, parking lot or a road, I was on that. Yeah. You couldn't stop me. Right. And it's such an innocent, horrifying thing because it's mm-hmm. so easy for a car to obviously drive onto these surfaces as they're meant for cars versus right. like getting out on the road and running to the sidewalk to grab somebody. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad. These kinds of cases are... Um, really interesting to me because I wonder how these things occur obviously that's what the big question is how did this happen but what I think about is I don't know how are you how is someone in the wrong place at the wrong time when there is somebody obviously lurking about and sees an opportunity and then takes said opportunity like were they stalking her has he seen her before probably not because how often do they go to their grandparents house but I just think that's interesting when that happens like how do you as a criminal decide to act on something like that I will never understand I can't understand it at all I just know that from the last podcast um, that statistic that about 350 children have been abducted by strangers in the last decade Mm -hmm. and I don't know what the statistic was for 1996 Um, But I do know that it is uncommon for strangers to abduct children. Like, it has to be so perfect timing, I think. And I think that's part of the reason why they're so low. It's so Mm -hmm. much easier to grab a child that is familiar with you, within your vicinity, trusts you. Their parents leave their kids alone with these people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's horrifying. It is. So Amber had only been biking for eight minutes when a black 1980s or 90s pickup truck pulled up to her new pink bike. Kevill said a young white or Hispanic man quickly got out of the truck and grabbed Amber off her bike. She kicked and screamed while he forced her into the driver's side door of his truck. Kevill immediately called the police after the truck took off. He reported seeing the black truck head further into Arlington instead of toward the local highway, which I find very interesting. 
Thanks to Kevil, Amber was reported missing before her parents even knew of the abduction. It led to a quick police response and a description of the abductor and his vehicle. Like, they're just so lucky that he was outside that day. Can you imagine witnessing that? No. I don't know what I would do. I don't think the police would be able to understand me in my 911 call. No, I'd be probably hysterical. Yeah. Did they say, um, did he get, he must not have got a license plate. Not that I've noticed, no. Or anything. Not even a partial. Dang. I think I looked at six articles for this information, so Mm -hmm. I think one of them would have mentioned it. Yeah, or maybe the car didn't have any plates. True. If they were, like, you know, really trying to to do this, they were, like, seeking out a lone child somewhere. Maybe they removed their plates. Although illegal to drive like that, I believe. Yes. Um, yeah, maybe they did that. Wow. So the law enforcement officers told the public that this was an unplanned abduction. They believed that something triggered the abductor into grabbing Amber that day. He could have had, like, a fight with a spouse, recently lost a job, or something else that sent him into, like, a dark spiral. They urged the public to call with any information about someone who could have done this because, you know, family members would notice if you were acting odd, and so they kind of, like, hoped that people would report on each other about it. Amber's mother, Donna, worked tirelessly to keep her daughter's story on the forefront of everyone's mind. She made appearances on the news and morning shows. She also repeatedly visited the police department to check on the status of her daughter's case. She felt helpless and frustrated as the days passed and Amber still hadn't been found. That just breaks my heart. Not only as a parent, but in general. Like, I don't know. If that was me, I I couldn't. I don't even know. Don't cry. I don't even know I'm if I cry. could, like, leave the yeah. house. You know, I definitely want to go to the police station, but... You know, there, there's, it's like torn between dealing with your grief mm-hmm. and needing to find your child. I can't even imagine the war going on internally for these mothers that have lost their children. Like, I should be out searching, but I feel like I can't get up. You know, like, I, right. I ma- imagine that's what they feel like. Obviously, I don't know. Yeah, and especially if you don't have, like, a, a good support system or something either. Like, other family around to help you, help get you out of that funk and help you you know, make your way into anything, anything that can help. Because if you, you know, with any kind of missing persons case, I think the first, what, 48 hours are the most critical. That's what they say. Right, as they say. Well, and then, you know, you have to add Ricky into this equation. Yeah. As a five-year-old, you know, he, he still needs his mother, and he needs to be cared for as normally as possible because it's already so traumatic for him. And how is he processing this? Right, I he mean, could feel like it's his, his fault. His fault, right, that's what I thought. I have no idea what he feels today, but as a yeah. five-year-old trying to wrap his little head around it, you know, just horrifying. It, the whole thing is just horrifying, all because of this one horrible man. Are there any, like, interviews or anything with him? Because he's got to be... There could be. He's got to be over 18 now, right? Yeah. We were born in the 90s. Damn. Yeah, he's he's definitely over 18 because I'm over 18 years <laughs> older than that. I like to pretend I'm not. <laughs> no. So abduction becomes murder investigation. So four days later, a man walking his dog found a small body near a creek about four miles away from the Winn-Dixie parking lot. He immediately called police and they knew it was likely Amber's body. Her case went from a child abduction investigation to a homicide investigation after they confirmed who she was. Her naked and bruised body was found with one sock on. It was determined that her throat had been slashed with either a knife or a screwdriver. Later, the autopsy results revealed that she died from the wounds on her neck. 
Crime scene investigators were able to collect some DNA evidence from her body. However, a lot of potential evidence was washed away in the creek. Twelve detectives and a sergeant were assigned the task of finding her murderer. They were dedicated to solving this horrific case. The Arlington PD worked closely with the Tarrant County Sheriff's Office and the FBI to investigate over 5,000 leads. They investigated everyone they believed could have been in the area at the time of the abduction, including Amber's father. Is it safe to say that he, her father, is um, like estranged or not with the mom? Yeah, um, I don't remember exactly what it said that her father had done, but it led to them going to a shelter, the family. Oh, wow. So they were presumably not safe with him because other, oh, sure. otherwise I don't think they'd go to a shelter. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I think he had a neighbor or a friend who owned a black truck and the police found that oh. out. And so they were like, oh, maybe it was him. Maybe. But it, I guess it wasn't. Wow. And it doesn't say like they checked every sex offender in the area or like who they did check and didn't check. Um, and I don't know what the laws were back then because I yeah. know that there have been I think some law changes yeah. since then. Right. Since this is taking place, you know, in the 90s. I mean, gosh, I was four we years old. I was four years old when this happened. So it's like, I don't even know what processes we had back then. Not as much as we do today. Yeah. You know. So um, then that brings us into the actual Amber Alert. Donna Norris, her mother, had been participating in a news documentary about women's experiences with the welfare system before the abduction. Because of this, the channel was able to share footage of Amber playing with her brother having dinner with her family, and showing off art that she'd made herself. This footage sparked sympathy from viewers and helped to push Amber's story into the spotlight. Another Texas mother, Diane Simone, called a local radio station with the idea of an emergency system that would broadcast alerts when 911 calls were made. She then requested that they call it Amber's Plan. It was put into place later that year and was called the Amber Alert, which stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. Diane Simone said, The problem was not that people didn't see them, it's that they didn't know what they were seeing. Sometimes people see things happening, but without more information, they don't realize they should be calling the police. She wanted a way to quickly give people the information they needed to report sightings and suspicious activity to law enforcement. And how genius is that? That is amazing. You know, I did not know that... I, I thought it was an acronym. I thought AMBER was an acronym, but I never realized how it connected to Amber herself like that is that is truly amazing it is really sad that something like this had to happen to this little girl to create something that probably has saved tons thousands I'm sure kids in general so it's really interesting well and um you know she really she was impactful. really lucky to have I believe his name was Jimmy Kevill yeah, the guy who uh, um, saw the incident. He, the yeah, he the witness saw it, and he immediately called police. Now, if they had been able to put that on road signs or send it mm -hmm. out in a text message at that time in 96, you know, that truck was heading into Arlington, not out of, not on the highway. He was, mm -hmm. he was in town, so this was probably a local man, and yeah. he probably drove past so many homes and lived right. in there. You know, like... 
anybody if they could have known listening to the radio especially then the radio was a way bigger thing than than it is today yeah i mean that's all we listen to Mm -hmm. and um now you know there's spotify pandora and it doesn't broadcast over those kinds of things so no and so you might not even hear it you know if you don't have it i guess obviously our cell phones give us that information but you can turn it off you can you don't have to get it um, something else that I thought was kind of interesting was um, Diane Simone and how she said um, sometimes people see things happening but without more information they don't realize they should call the police like I have seen you know a few different kinds of situations nothing to this extreme um, but things that are happening where I'm like should I call the cops for this like do these people need help but I don't know because I don't want to get involved like that's what I'm afraid of if I saw a situation like this yes I would call obviously but I feel that too like I don't know if I would want to get involved well depending on the situation of course I, I I totally get what you're saying there's definitely been some public situations that I have witnessed and it's not to the point of abuse or violence and um it's not to the point of like oh my gosh obviously this person abducted a child so like i don't want to call police unless i'm for sure there's something wrong right you know and it's hard to tell but there's definitely been times where i have walked around a vehicle because i saw a car seat in there and couldn't tell if there was a child in it Hmm. i will peek in the windows that is a big problem actually people leaving their children in their vehicles like unattended I don't even know how you can do that, but apparently it's big enough to where, like, they have to make um, every summer. Like, when I used to go on Facebook, I don't go on Facebook anymore, but all the time in the summer, make sure you check your back seat for your children. Leave your purse back there. Yeah. Which I don't understand. Your purse is not more important than your child. No. I'm always wondering, you know, where my child is, what he's doing, and, you know, things like that. I'm not judging people, but I will report something if I see something, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. if I think I see a baby in a car, I will report that. If I think that I am seeing a drunk driver, I will report that. If I think I'm seeing abuse, I'm definitely reporting that. I mean, I've called on a neighbor before in our apartment building, and I have no idea what happened, but um, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to... I'm not going to say that, like, I wouldn't call. You know, but there's there's times where you can't tell what you're looking at. Right. And I, I think going back to what Diane Simone said, you know, you don't know what you're looking at. But if we knew, like, oh, my gosh, this girl is kicking and screaming in this black truck, that's not her dad. Or you know, that might not be her dad because mm-hmm. there is a girl that has been abducted into a black truck. Like, then you would be more likely to call. Because, I mean, I've seen kids kicking and screaming their dads at the park just up the way last summer. Right. Yeah. And your first thought isn't that, oh, he must he or she, whoever it is, must be taking this child. You know, it's not your first. Depending on how the child is acting, you know, yeah. Yeah. I guess I've never assumed, like, abduction, but nowadays I guess you never know. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. So two years later, in 1998, the Amber Alert was successfully used by the Arlington PD after a two-month-old baby was abducted by her drug-abusing babysitter. A shock 911 caller said she's got the baby sitting right in the front with her because the caller knew what to look for. Law enforcement officers were able to save the baby. That's That's huge. It's huge that they were able to save them. That's horrifying. Two-month-old baby. Oh, my gosh. I can't can't even. Mm -mm. And then in 2000, the federal government believed that the Amber Alert needed more, though. Overuse of the tool led to unforeseen issues that impeded investigations. 
They realized there needed to be very specific criteria in order to properly utilize this tool and created an age limit. Since then, only children under the age of 18 can have an Amber Alert issued. However, there are other alerts. I definitely remembered seeing a silver alert in Texas, and I think that's for elderly people that are missing, have maybe Alzheimer's or dementia and have, like, wandered off. There's mm-hmm. definitely other alerts, but they had to, yeah. like, um, specify the criteria just for this one specifically because of issues. Mm-hmm. And I remember a few odd years ago around here where we live, there was, um, like, a alert like that that came up on our phones for this um, certain area it wasn't safe for people to be in because there was like some fires going on like people who lived in a um, more like out in the country and stuff there was like a bunch of fires going on and people had to like evacuate and I remember there was an um, alert come up on the phone that was like you guys need to get out of your houses you need to go leave now yeah, I think they do have like Something ones like for that. floods and tornadoes too. Yeah, like d- natural disasters and stuff to alert people. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it's great that they have, because you know it's so much harder. Like back in the in nineties, right? Like yeah. when you when thinking now, people didn't have cell phones. Not everybody, anyway. Not everybody had cell phones. Like right. now, we have multiple cell phones, right? Like mm-hmm. not even just one, because they're so much more affordable and they're. Yeah so easy to have so you know my spouse will have one I'll have one eventually our children will each have one that's six phones if somebody doesn't hear it another person will right and um it's so much easier and more effective to save people I really love that they're able to do that Mm -hmm. I agree so on April 30th 2003 President George W. Bush signed the Amber Alert package into law at the Rose Garden of the White House once law enforcement have a case that qualifies for the alert They notify broadcasters and state transportation agencies. The alert will appear on transportation signs, digital billboards, and as text to cell phones. I think that that is definitely needed because... More need to be around. Yeah, not everybody has their cell phone on or... Well, and you shouldn't be using it while driving, of course. Yeah, that too. And and when you're driving, you know, you're more likely to see a getaway car than when you're sitting in your house... Right. you know sipping tea and doing a podcast <laughs> like exactly you need to have it on the road in a place because i don't yes. check my phone when i'm driving so that's definitely no. a really good point right i mean unless you have a passenger with you yeah you know that's the only other way you're gonna truly know i mean yes like i don't know in my car like i have a window mount and you know my phone sits like this and i could see it i could look at it, i could glance at it but we shouldn't really be doing that of course So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's data indicates that about 67% of abductions involve a getaway vehicle. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned this last time. Mm -hmm. This means that abductors can leave the immediate area very quickly, obviously making it difficult to recover the abducted children. With the public's help to watch for specific details, there's a larger chance of children being found before it's too late. Donna is so proud that her baby was able to help save other children's lives. It's a legacy that will live on so her death wasn't in vain. She feels that Amber is taking care of other people's children the way she cared for her little brother, which is so heart-wrenching. That is. Donna wonders if the Amber Alert could have saved her daughter if something like it had been active at the time of her abduction. And I have to say I definitely wonder that, too, because Arlington is, I believe, one of the bigger cities in Texas. Um, Obviously not as large as Austin, but... um, Right, because you lived in that sort of area. In Austin, yeah. But, yeah, I feel like it was a larger city in um, Texas. And, you know, if somebody knew that they were looking for a black truck, they could have called about a black truck. Right. 
and now Amber Alerts are used in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and 33 other countries. As of December 2021, the alerts have saved over 1,000 children in the United States, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. General Amber Alert criteria um, includes law enforcement officers must believe that an abduction has occurred, they must believe that the child is in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death, there must be a clear description of the victim and the abduction, the child must be 17 years or younger, and their name and information must be entered into the National Crime Information Center system. Um, however, each state does have its own criteria, so uh, I know that there have been some issues where people have wanted to have an Amber Alert for their mm -hmm. child, and unfortunately, they didn't have... They, they didn't qualify. Yeah, they didn't meet the criteria for the state they lived in. That sucks. I can't even imagine what I that would feel like. how much it varies between other states. I think it's really interesting that there's 33 other countries doing it, too. Like, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that earlier today. Um, I didn't know if any other countries actually utilized this or something like this, if anything, um, as well. So that's amazing. Like, her entire story has really taken over the world. Yeah. In a way. And how many children has she saved in other countries? Right. And in some of those other kind of countries, I mean, that has to be really prevalent. Depending yeah. on where you're from. I don't know. I've never been out of the United States, so I don't know what that's like. But it's very interesting, and that's amazing that it's really expanded so far. So let's look at Amber's case today. Police never said what kind of DNA was collected from Amber's body. However, DNA technology has advanced so much that they are hoping 2023 is the year that they'll be able to get some answers. They may be hoping that genome sequencing will lead to finding Amber's murderer and DNA analysis. Uh, companies have already solved some cases um, in the past. Have you seen that? I have not. Um, I know one of them. The, f the most famous one that I can think of is the Golden State Killer. So there's oh. companies like 23andMe oh, where yeah, you yeah. like spit in a little test tube and oh, send yeah, it I've in heard of that. and then they send it back and they're like, this is your genetic history. Yeah. And for like the Golden State Killer, somebody, a descendant of his, yeah. did it and it was linked to the DNA that the police officers had collected from one of the victims. Really? And it was like, wow. oh, this person's cousin's cousin, cousin, cousin. And they, they figured out who it was. No way. That's amazing. I can't even like imagine that. I, I always thought those, I know, I always thought those things were kind of silly in a way, but I never thought like how useful they could be to find somebody like that. To see that they're actually catching criminals with it. I love that. I love yeah. that technology. Like, please, That's let's amazing. all spit in a cup. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just, who, you do I mean, if it was my cousin's cousin's that. uncle's brother, sure, I'll help you find him. <laughs> I don't know that guy. So despite over 7,000 tips, her killer remains at large over 25 years later. The detectives are still trying to solve the case. They have never gone over six months without a tip coming in. It is important to keep cases like this in people's minds. Someone out there likely knows something or saw something. Maybe they were too scared to come forward then, but you could actually still help now. Well, and then, you know, know, there's also people that are scared to report. Right. Which Because yeah, they've been threatened as well. So... But then there's so many people who, and I hate this, they claim, they'll, they'll call the police department and be like, yeah. I did this, just for, I don't know, clout, fame, it's notoriety. It's weird. It's really weird. I saw that in um, the Zodiac Killer movie. People did that. Yeah. Like, 
just all lined up out the door of the police station like oh, i'm this killer why, Why would, would you, you want to do, do that? that? One, you're what? completely wasting time. Two, you're breaking the mother's yeah. heart. Like, if she finds out that there was a new tip and then it turns out that it's just trash, I just currently we have thirty-seven suspects. None of them match. <laughs> yeah, none of them. That's, That's just so upsetting. Yeah, it's like, why are you guys? Are you guys purposely throwing this off, or what? That's another thing. Like, what is the psychology in their head that these people are like, oh, I'm just gonna tell them that I saw some random truck go down the way. Like, why would you? Why would you do that? Yeah, why would you just? it's not up. a joke no it's not so the truck was described as being a full-size fleet side black 80s or 90s pickup truck with a short wheelbase single cab non-sliding clear rear window with no chrome striping or visible damage one of the articles said that the vehicle was seen at a nearby laundromat earlier in the day which i think it was jimmy that saw it i think jimmy said he saw it at the laundromat really? near the wind dixie but i'm not for sure wow that's very specific, though. That is so specific. And I know, I'm mm -hmm. sure they tried as hard as they absolutely could, but it's just so heartbreaking. So the white or Hispanic man is described as shorter than six feet tall. He was in his 20s or 30s at the time, but would currently be in his 40s or 50s today. Kevill described his hair as brown or black. If anyone has any information about Amber's case, um, they're asked to call Arlington PD at 817-575-8823 or Crime Stoppers of Tarrant County at 817-469-8477. It'd be interesting to see if anything comes out of this with having this case be more talked about. And I think there's a documentary that came out on Peacock for her, too. I don't have Peacock. I don't either because of reasons too many subscriptions but um i think there is a new documentary out about her or something i think it's like circling again which is really nice yeah i really I really could be wrong on that and if i am i apologize that this is the year like can this please be the year that that the dna analysis like we don't know um what kind of dna whether it was hair or um skin skin it could be under her something fingernails under the nails, yeah. yeah um I don't know how she was lying in the creek and I don't know if that was accidental or not or like if half mm -hmm. of her body was in and half out um I was wondering about that too like is it a coincidence that she was found near the creek or like half in the creek because it said near the creek but then it also said that some potential evidence was, was washed, washed away. away so she must have been partially in the creek at least at least yeah I'm glad they were able to get some DNA off of her body and I really hope that this is the year yeah I agree but that's all awesome. we have for you guys today. All right. So we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.